At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. You see, none of it was real. It was illusion. Your art, your science, it was all a nightmare. Now it's done. Finished. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid. There is no going back. Our enemy pushes us on and on and on. And until we're strong enough or can find Earth and get help, we can never stop or turn People away. People should not be afraid of their governments. It's got to shine standing in the mud. I am not an Choice is an illusion created between those with power and those who are not. Happy hair season. Welcome to the desert of the real. I'll make it quick because I'm wearing right now the wing sandals of Hermes with so many projects as we break out of the black iron prison together. This isn't exactly an AB Live or a normal show. Let me explain. No, let me sum up. I was approached last week by a publisher and several August researchers on psychedelics about hosting a panel on YouTube based on the recent and monumental finding of cannabis resin in an ancient Jewish altar. A true game changer. So I said yes, and we conducted an incredible discussion on my YouTube channel. This is the audio version. I basically sat back and allowed a very group of religious and entheogenic exemplars to take us as high as we needed to go. Our varied panel included past guests and authors Chris Bennett and Danny Nemu, Jewish theologian Risha Groner, medieval psychedelic expert Tom Hatzis, and activist Reverend Christopher Lawson. Damn fine birdie num-num. Because this was a favor to the publisher and the guests on a pivotal event in religious studies, everyone gets the full discussion. But please support Aeon Bite as I continue to grow this red pill cafeteria. I've expanded into panels like this one, live interviews, debates, shorter videos, unique guests and topics, and much more, all to bring you that Gnostic gnosis and trashy form as Philip K. Dick said. And soon I will bring Gnostic exercise and rituals for your benefit you can access, as well as hopefully the Finding Hermes podcast that deals with addiction and mental issues from an esoteric point of view. Only getting started to serve you, and more incredible and dangerous content coming the rest of June, with great bonuses for patrons at Patreon and AB Prime members. 
I would certainly subscribe to my YouTube channel and put alerts on, as sometimes I do an AB Live on the fly when there is a timely issue, like this one. One AB Live coming this weekend, actually, where Gnostic clergy discuss spiritual solutions to the pandemic and recent social unrest. But enough of my short drivel. Led us to the audio version of the panel, which we entitle Hotboxing the Holy of Holies. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is. It just is. than Aeon Bite. This is a special show, Hot Boxing the Holy of Holies. So welcome aboard everyone here. This is live. We've got an excellent panel to discuss important issues, historic issues, and a whole lot of entheogens. So very excited about this, very excited about the guests. For those of you who are joining in the chat room, we will try to get to your questions. I will be the moderator, so I will be writing down any questions we have. And uh, we please uh, write them down in caps. Please use as many question marks and the guests you would, and if you have a specific guest you want to ask a question, please write down that. Please write those down as well. And again, we are live. Um, So we'll start with, uh, again, why we are here, the great discovery that happened in Israel that really gives a a broad insight into the religious practice of the ancient Israelites, which many of the panelists here, uh, as we were talking about, just rolling their heads and like, yeah, we've been talking about this, the intelligent use in the ancient Mediterranean people and how widespread it probably was for thousands of years. So, to get us started, why don't uh, have uh, I'll let uh, Danny Nemu get us started since uh, he's also he's yeah, been I a past guest and he is uh, and of course he is one of the uh, help. He really got this show going. So, Danny, thank you. Tell us about yourself and what's going on. I'm uh, I'm Danny Nemu and. Um, I got really excited the other day by this discovery. Um, like you say, I've been writing about that for a little while, not as long as Chris. Um, I wrote in my second book, Neuro Apocalypse, I've got a chapter about not just cannabis, but all of the different drugs, psychoactives that were used by the, uh, by the Israelites. And um, I'm really, really excited. Awesome. Well, I do want to say something before we start, actually, which is that today's... Uh, today's webinar is free, but if you would like to make a donation, the Holy Land Trust is a very good place to make that donation too. They're doing work in uh, getting Jews and Palestinians together um, in the Holy Land. So given the nature of the discovery, I thought we'd put that out there, the Holy Land Trust. So look them up and please send them a donation if you can. Awesome, awesome. And uh, another guest of the show who's been many times, and we have talked so much about uh, psychedelics and intelligent use all over the world, is Chris Bennett. Chris, how are you doing? And uh, tell the audience about yourself. 
I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I've been writing about the, the role of cannabis and magic and religion since the early 90s. I've got four books on the subject. And uh, one of the big things that I've written about is the uh, theories of uh, Sula Bennett, that the Hebrew term cannabosum was cannabis. And I see this uh, discovery of uh, cannabis resins in, on an altar in a uh, smaller version of the Holy of Holies in Arad, Jerusalem from the 8th century BC as real confirmation of that because it's in exactly the right place and right time for when we would expect to find it, you know? And uh, um, I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of theological and archaeological uh, discussion about this discovery. And it's really going to shake up uh, both worlds in a really big way. Awesome. Awesome. Good deal. And why don't we go to uh, Reverend Christopher. Tell us about yourself and why you're here. Well, I'm here because I've been uh, holding the same views as Chris Bennett for a long time, uh, for quite a few decades, uh, for over four decades, in fact. And uh, I've been a defender of the freedom of religion for the Church of the Universe. Uh, they held to uh, a cannabis sacrament, they still do, and uh, that cannabis is a legitimate part of religious sacrament came into, under criticism by the police, and they ended up in court. Uh, so I ended up in court as well. I was in four different court cases defending cannabis as having been a traditional entheogen in many different ancient religions. And I brought the evidence to court in the Superior Court of Toronto. I brought cannabis sacrament. Uh, cannabis, I'll just put that closer for the camera so people can see. Now, in this case, uh, we had a trial where the defense spent $120,000 bringing expert witnesses from all around the world. They brought in Dr. Carl Ruck, Dr. Carl A.P. Ruck from Boston University, professor of classical literature. Uh, they brought in Dr. Francis Henry, uh, who is an expert on uh, cannabis use as a sacrament with Erastafarians, and numerous other scholars. And I was uh, with a large collection of scholars when I was on the stand with this. They had me on the stand for one entire day. Uh, right from the beginning and right to the end. Uh, and they really, they could not, uh, under the rules of evidence, uh, disprove uh, the thesis that I was presenting. It's the exact same thesis Chris has been presenting. And in fact, Chris uh, helped provide a lot of evidence uh, for me uh, from one of his books that he hadn't published yet uh, of, on the cannabis and the homeless solution, which uh, uh, is an excellent book. I recommend all of Chris's books, by the way. And... Uh, my training is in theology and biblical languages and archaeology. I spent 22 years in school, and now it turns out I get to use all that uh, effort for a good cause. What a surprise. Well, thank you. And, uh, yes, we got now over 50 people in the chat room. More will be coming in. Uh, again, if you have any questions, I will try to get them for the panelists. Please write them in caps, any question marks, who you would like to talk to. Of course, as we have a discussion, if a panelist has a question for another of the researchers or scholars here, let's keep it organic. But now, uh, uh, am I pronouncing your name? Rishi Groner? And I Risha. Risha, how are you doing? Tell us about yourself and thanks for being here. It's wonderful to be here. Fun to be joining all of you for the first time. I'm actually joining you from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right, right where it's all, it's where it's all been happening. Uh, I'm here because I'm in my third year studying for rabbinic ordination. So I've been doing some, uh, some exploration of biblical texts 
and Talmudic texts very intensely the last couple of years and really all my life. I've, I've grown up in an observant Jewish environment and as I've moved in and out in my own ways, I've been doing a lot of uh, study on, you know, what was the practice like of this tradition that we still carry today. And uh, what's, been, what's been powerful for me is that I've sort of had two different careers, one in marketing where I specialized in cannabis and did a lot of work on cannabis education on, you know, uh, uh, showing people how to ingest and what kind of state they can be in and how it can help them both for physical conditions and spiritual conditions. And it's been my absolute pleasure to also be working in the spiritual community and in the Jewish community to understand how what we learn from the ancient practices actually helps us learn how we can be more intentional in today's practices and how we can utilize entheogens and cannabis and other plant medicines in a way that is more conscious based on the sacramental uses of our ancestors. So it's been very exciting to see this news, although I'll say that like most of us were not very surprised. And I think if anything, this is really not going to change so much in terms of something we already knew, but it gives us um, the support to move forward as we're building and creating new types of spiritual communities where we can show people how to infuse their spiritual practice and their plant medicine practice together. Well, thank you. And uh, Tom, tell us about yourself and why you're here. Um, pretty much here for the same reason. All you guys are here. I've been uh, friends and colleagues with uh, Bennett for many years now, and uh, I've been a supporter of what he's written about cannibalism. And uh, as I said before we started the live stream, uh, good theories predict future discoveries, and Bennett predicted this, and we discovered it. And I, I think that that's remarkable. Um, I, uh, my specialty is mostly in uh, medieval entheogen use. My, uh, my areas of linguistics are uh, more romance languages. I know uh, Reverend Lawson handles the ancient stuff. I handle more the romantic uh, medieval stuff. And um, uh, one of the things that I've been, that I've argued against is the idea that any of these things were covered up and that I think that this discovery is one of those situations where, yeah, this wasn't really covered up at all. Uh, the fact that cannabis was written as cannabosm, which is, you know, sounds like a lot of the other words used for cannabis in the ancient world. I mean, it just, it was only a matter of time before something like this was discovered. And I'm here to kind of celebrate that, uh, to answer your question directly uh, with all of you today. Awesome. Well, thank you. All right. Well, why don't we get started on the discovery itself? Uh, uh, maybe I'd like to go to you, Rishi, because you are there in Jerusalem. Maybe explain what exactly is this discovery for the audience members and listeners later on who want to know. And has it really rocked the uh, academic community over there or how has it been received? Uh, you might be asking the wrong person. Um, I'm not in the academic community here. It's uh, I'm sort of on my COVID break. Um, but I will say, <laughs> so, you know, the excavations at Tel Arad took place quite a while ago. Um, but it sounds like with, with modern technology, the ability to test for the resin uh, found that, you know, there's presence of different uh, cannabinoids in the resin that was found on the altar there. Um, as far as, you know, I've seen it in, in the day-to-day -day, um, Israel-based newspapers as one of those, like, how cool is this moments? Um, you know, uh, medical cannabis is huge in Israel, as, as many of you know. It's one of the oldest uh, medical cannabis industries. And it's a community where you have 
of many, many people who may not actually be engaged in religion, but are very engaged in spirituality and very engaged in psychedelics. So it's an exciting moment for that sort of large mass of psychedelic spiritual seekers in Israel to be like, yeah, this is it. This is what we've been talking about. And that's sort of the word on the street that I've been in touch with. Awesome. I have a question for you, but before I ask you the question, perhaps I can answer the question that's on the table right now about the Tel Arad discoveries. Sure. The, the, having only read the uh, archaeological, archaeological, archaeological report and not having participated in any way in that, uh, so I'm, this is secondhand what I've been reading, and that is that they've discovered cannabinoid resins on one of the altars and frankincense resins on another. There were two altars that were discovered uh, in Tellerad. It's a temple uh, shrine that was obviously doing its own kind of cultus uh, separate from the Jerusalem cultus and that it showed signs of having been been disabled by the Israelites themselves rather than being destroyed uh, by Sennacherib or any of the destruction that came uh, later. Uh, so it seems that there was some kind of a halting of the services at the shrine uh, by Israelites themselves. The shrine seems to be, uh, uh, I take Herzog's opinion, that the shrine is connected to layers 10 and layers 9 uh, of the excavations and that this would only be a roughly 40-year period uh, in the 8th century BC. So uh, this would uh, be prior to the destruction uh, that uh, later was to come. Uh, others like Naaman have argued uh, not so and that the temple was destroyed later and still others uh, have argued that there were two stages to the destruction uh, that there was one done uh, under Hezekiah and that there was one stage uh, done under Josiah uh, later on. Uh, the destruction under Josiah uh, seems to be mythological. It's not supported by the archaeological record. This is where the Bible and the archaeology just uh, diverge on this particular case. Uh, so that's the relevance of the finds that there's cannabis involved uh, is what is the uh, uh, headliner uh, in this uh, for the altars. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising considering uh, they've, they've had cannabis already uh, in the 6th century BC, discovered it, uh, 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 what's the name of it now? A uh, little brain drain here for a second. Uh, where it was used for childbirth, uh, an, in, an incense. 3rd century AD. 3rd yeah. century AD. Okay. Not BC. 3rd okay. century AD. Okay. So you've, you've already, I bet Shemesh, Israel, sorry, I finally I bet Shemesh, that's right. And I just took a moment to access that, I'm getting older. Uh, and uh, so we know that uh, cannabis has been related to Israelite uh, uh, services and religion for a long time, including the linguistics of Kanabosum. Uh, people have argued, does the Kana refer to cannabis? Well, I say that the uh, bosom, uh, meaning aromatic or uh, uh also inebriating or uh, hithbosum means inebriated, a related word. So it kind of sells it as, as uh, an entheogen. Uh, but the, the word kana by itself is more than sufficient because uh, there are word clusters uh, throughout the ancient world where a similar word 
sounds like in many different languages, even though the languages are not linguistically related. And kana is one of those words that comes from word clusters. Uh, also, the words for stirrup and horse and saddle are one of those things for word clusters. And it turns out it was the uh, uh, Yamnaya and later on the Scythian cultures that were spreading this uh, via their use of horseback riding. So uh, kana is the uh, Hebrew word that is parallel to the Indo-European word, also pronounced kana, which itself evolved from the Proto-Indo-European word kanab. So cannabis is definitely the referent here. And with the discovery here archaeologically, this just lays the debate 100% to rest. And it means that we've got, if it was a baseball game, uh, Chris Bennett got a home run. So we've got a clock up. Grand slam home run. Yeah, you know. In the ninth inning, uh, there were three down. Yeah, you know, uh, um, th th it really does solidify it. And there's a few things I want to say about this fine air rat. Um, initially, people were like, you know, like, oh, this like means that they were using cannabis in Jewish worship. Well, they were, but it's also tied in like this. The, the, the temple in Arad is very similar to the Holy of Holies, so the way it's designed and set up. It's like a miniature version of it. So it's all part of the wider temple worship. But the, 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 the references to cannabosum that Sula Bennett laid out in uh, 1936 for the first time, uh, they really fit with this so well because uh, the archaeologists are saying, well, you know, there's no evidence that it was grown in this time period in Israel. It was imported in Ezekiel. It's described as coming into uh, um, on the caravans, you know, and, and the trade caravans. And this is where the term kana comes into the Hebrew language because, like, when you're introduced to a new item into your thing, it usually retains the name of, of the item that it, it traveled with, right? And kana is this common Proto-Indo-European Scythian term for cannabis, and it came into the language, and they likely added the bosom of their own uh, uh, to the term to describe its fragrance, you know? And, um, and uh, then it's, it's also tied up with this polytheistic situation. And in most of the Old Testament, in Kings and Chronicles, it's a polytheistic situation in Jerusalem and Israel, you know, and uh, the goddess who we know through a lot of archaeological evidence now uh, tying her to Yahweh, Asherah, uh, seems to be tied up with this uh, same polytheistic uh, conundrum. And we can see this in the uh, in the references to Kanabasum uh, um, pointed to by Sula Bennett. And uh, um, particularly in Jeremiah 6.20, where, you know, uh, Jeremiah says, uh, what, do I, what do I care about incense of Sheba or Cana from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. And he's talking directly here about the use of cannabis in the cult of Asherah, the queen of heaven. And this is made clear more so in Jeremiah 44, where he's lambasting the children of Israel for their unholy worship of the queen of heaven and burning her incense and pouring out drink offerings to her. And in Isaiah, you know, the Isaiah reference to Cana, you have not brought any canna, you have not brought any canna for me or lavished me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. Well, what's happening is all that canna's going off to these other temples that are worshipped in polytheistic Israel. And, you know, for some reason, the gods talk a little more when you bring canna incense into the temple. And, you know, it's pretty clear that sometimes... Isaiah did get to partake, and I think is one of the most illustrated versions of how Cana would have been used in the temple. 
And, and this is uh, from uh, Isaiah 6, 4 to 7. And the post of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So he's taking a coal right off the altar with, with tongs and holding it up to the prophet's mouth, and he takes a big hit of, uh, of the coal there, right there. You know what I mean? So it's pretty illustrative of how that worked. And and more so with Exodus 30:23, the first of the quotes. And this is where God, who first appears to Moses in flames of fire from within a burning bush, uh, commands Moses to make this holy anointing oil uh, that contains about six and a half pounds of this can of awesome, depending on how you weigh a shekel, uh, with myrrh, cinnamon, and cassia into about a gallon and a half of olive oil. And every time, and he makes an extraction of cannabis, this also fits with this study because it's pure THC kind of resiny uh, type of uh, substance that they're talking about being burnt on there. It was burnt on manure, so it needed a source to burn on. And every time that Moses is to speak to the Lord, he goes inside the tent of the meeting, a small enclosed space, and he burns some of the frankincense, and then he places some of the uh, 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 holy oil on the altar incense, as well as covering his body with this. And THC is fatty soluble, and your skin is a big organ, and it can pass through in large amounts. But more importantly, he burns some of this on the altar, and he speaks to the Lord in the pillar of smoke over the altar. This is the Shekinah, the physical presence of God in the temple. God's not in the temple unless that pillar of smoke is burning over the altar. So this makes Moses a shaman, like other shamans and other cultures that use a psychoactive substance for religious, spiritual purposes. And this is a revelation paralleling Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, challenging the myths of creation. Because what it does is it shows the plant-based shamanic origins of religion. And that's what I have to say about that. I just wanted to say real quick, Bennett, that was the best impression of Isaiah I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there are a lot of things that are part of the cultural record that supports what Chris just said. Uh, the parallels, for example, the Canaanite temples, uh, the structure of a two-part uh, temp, uh, or shrine, the holy place, most holy place, having the holy place usually cubic-shaped all very parallel. And then we know the Canaanites had cannabis in their temples discovered in different sites. So uh, again, it's a, an exact parallel. Uh, Chris mentions a tent of meeting for Moses. And in, uh, the Bible's very clear. You knew when Moses was talking to God because there'd be a cloud of smoke at, the, at Moses' doorway. And so you open up the doorway to Moses' tent, out goes a cloud of smoke. This is very similar to the tent of meeting of the uh, Scythian culture, also another nomadic culture, just like the Habiru, uh, from which we get the word Hebrew, uh, and the uh, whether that's the origin of the word or whether that was a uh, uh, somebody using it to put put them down, I, I'm not going to debate that. But they are linked words, nevertheless, and they were a nomadic group, and so were the Scythians, and they were at the same time period. So the Scythians, uh, they had a tent of meeting. We've got examples of it preserved in the Berserk tombs. And uh, we even have the brazier where they would take hot stones or take coals from the fire, put them in the brazier, which is a three-legged uh, device pan, basically, 
and then they would put the cannabis buds on top of it. Herodotus describes the whole thing. The Greek historian Herodotus described it, how the Scythians would howl with laughter and joy, and how it would make a, such a cloudy smoke hotboxing the tent that it uh, basically would rival the Greek saunas, said Herodotus. And he said it's better than any Grecian vapor bath, didn't he? Yes, exactly. And if I could even, oh, oh, please, Risha, go. Well, you know, even the term, all of this is any, any, any review of even sort of like the rabbinic texts, you know, early first, second century will tell you that the incense rituals were so powerful and intoxicating and no one's trying to hide that. I mean, the term used and it's still used today in liturgy is reach nichlach, which means like an intoxicating, uh, uplifting smell or scent. And I think, you know, in, in any time any of these discussions have been going on, um, where I always bring it back to, especially with more traditional people, is just note that there's no question that there are coals with incense on them. There's no question that there's an anointing oil with a variety of plant-based ingredients. What they are is less important as actually acknowledging that they existed and they were an integral part of the ritual. So whether you were offering an animal sacrifice or a meal offering sacrifice or bringing fruits or doing prayers or absolving yourself from an oath, there was always incense involved. There was always you know, a variety. There was the wine and there was the incense. It was always about creating some element of intoxication. Sure. Okay. I, question about that real quick, um, if nobody minds. Um, one of the things that I, I try to guard myself against is saying, well, this happened here, so it kind of sounds like what's going on here, so this must be what's going on here, because nine times out of ten, that's actually not true. And uh, one of the things that I w would ask ever, the panelists is that, are you aware of, and uh, I'd like uh, Reverend Lawson to maybe uh, chime in on this one, because it deals with, I, I believe, ancient uh, Assyrian and perhaps Akkadian, actually not Assyrian, Akkadian um, rituals of purification uh, that had nothing to do with, the idea was burning somebody's lips to kind of burn the, the sin or the badness out of it. And that might not have anything to do with cannabis at all now that doesn't i'm not saying anything about cannabism being cannabis i mean that particular thing i know bennett you write about that in libra 420 uh the purification of isaiah's lips and if you read jerry brown's uh the psychedelic gospels although you shouldn't um he says it was a mushroom you know so uh, and yet when you actually look at akkadian sources they don't talk about entheogens at all they talk about it in a completely different purification context um so uh, Reverend yeah, I think, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris, if you want to start. I'm okay. going to get my glasses. I think, that, I think in the case of Isaiah, it's kind of clear because uh, it comes right off the, brazen, the, the altar in the uh, temple, right? You know what I mean? So the context is right there. Sure. For, for the case okay. of cannabis. Yeah, but, but all incense use, all incense use is not cannabis use. And okay. even the anointing oil in the Old Testament is strictly prohibited to the priests and kings, you know what but I mean? I'm not, uh, so it wasn't something. I'm making a slightly different, po different point. What I'm saying is that the idea of, to let's say that there even were, were had, was hashish on that coal, as you write about in Libra 420, which yeah. is totally possible. The, the actual symbolic, I mean, that putting, pressing that against somebody's lips is not going to get them high. It's just not. That's not how, oh, that's, that's how all of us know that's not how cannabis works. So it, it would be like saying he held the cotton knives up to my lips. You know what I mean? 
that's certainly a way to interpret it but again i'm i'm going back to akkadian sources where they have that same kind of ritual and again there are you different titles, akkadian sources the hebrew sources you know what i mean akkadian but there's a rabbinic tradition about moses being burnt on the lips with a coal so not that far off yeah okay i'm just i'm, I'm just trying to get the nuance uh, i just would okay. you know i prefer right. nuance conversation that's all i just have the relations in the uh, assyrian medical tablets mm-hmm. uh, we have the uh denotation for cannabis uh repeatedly so we know the assyrians knew about cannabis on a regular basis yeah akkadian uh, not assyrian okay I, I messed up when i said assyrian uh, and i know i agree with you because assyrian the word was kunabu which is a verb which means to smoke okay i don't deny any of that uh, okay I, I okay so when you said assyrian i went there for, uh, yeah I, I apologize yeah, I, I got a point there i got a point here I don't think that kanubu means a verb. You know, maybe somebody's interpreted that way. But the Assyrian terms, you know, basically from the same roots as the uh, uh, Hebrew, just in a slightly different phonetic uh, content. You know, it's both kanabas and kanaba, very, very phonetically similar. And also the identical way that it was used, because these Assyrian references to kanabu specifically describe it as an ingredient for the sacred rites in a letter uh, from uh, 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 Ezra Haddon's mother to the high priest you know yes. she's like what are the items for water honey and oil but that's and but, but, also uh, it appears in uh, 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 statements of purchase for temple rites you know what i mean they have to buy large amounts of it for the temple rites i know and, uh, um, so it's pretty trip, clear that i got off on a tangent because i accidentally said assyrian so all the things you're saying about assyrian i agree with i'm not right. talking about that i'm talking about akkadian sources right right akkadian, right not assyrian right now big difference and before we jump away from the akkadian since we jumped there anyways the, the, the Knubu may have been uh, uh, a source for the Proto-Indo-European Knop. And the, uh, the, the B and the P often transliterate from one language to another, which brings me back to the question I wanted to bring to Rishi much earlier, that uh, the, you're mentioning Hebrew uh, use of cannabis as an entheogen. Uh, I'm also wondering about their use of it as a recreational substance in, in a less sacred context, uh, because Ezekiel mentions the importation of paneg uh, from the East. And Dr. Raphael Mithulam of Hebrew University has suggested that this PV transliteration that I just referred to earlier with the Kanubu Kanat uh, may be happening there with the uh, paneg and banga and, and uh, bang. And so it may have been a transliteration, a bang, uh, the, east, the eastern uh, non-sacred cannabis-based uh, drink. And so it may be that the Hebrews were more cannabis-friendly uh, than our culture is thought. And it would go without mention because it wasn't prohibited. Uh, Genesis one twenty nine says, I've given you every green herb. So th- their, their view of their God was that all these were God-given. And so we had a right to them. So, but it seems uh, yeah. like it changed. Oh, sorry. No, I don't. I mean, honestly, that's that's the first I've heard of that idea um, about the bang, and that's really interesting. So, you know, I definitely have to have a look into that. But one thing that I always think about when I see that point in Isaiah about the cane is, I guess, um, I often think of cane as hemp and cane bosom as you know the aromatic hemp, which would be the uh, cannabis itself. 
And because we have rabbinic texts that talk about kane, and it's very clear that they're referring to a reed or some fibrous substance, which is even the word for it in modern Hebrew. Um, so, you know, when you talk about lighting the Sabbath candles and how you can use different, different substances and you can use kane, it sounds like, yeah, they're talking about using a good substance like that. And you have even later rabbinic texts, and, you know, it's, I know it's not as necessary, it's not as ancient. Maybe, Tom, this is your area. We're talking a little closer to medieval, but Maimonides' law code talks about, you know, kanbus, um, which is, you know, a material that he's referring to from a totally legal standpoint. So I guess when I've, when I've looked at it before, I've always thought of it as this was a very common substance that was available to people. And just like we think about our future vision for a world of, you know, cannabis legalization where we have the hemp seed being used for nutrition and the hemp root being used for all kinds of industrial use. And then we have the aromatic piece being used for medicine. And I would imagine that it was being used in that same way. I often, I actually don't believe there's such thing as recreational cannabis use because I believe that it's always medicating for whatever reason you need to medicate. If it's, you know, stress or (laughs) spirituality. So if that was, if that was available to them, then yeah, it was part of their medicinal process. But then again, the, the medicinal process was also very ritual based back then. And we know that we know that there's a lot of unwritten feminine history of the women who were the medicine women who were putting together the tinctures and putting together all of the, you know, um, I, I lost the word where you put the, the compress together, um, topical. Yeah. That history is now lost. I wrote two books on it. <laughs> there we go. With well, the, what women healers were doing. So. Right. And how much do we know from the actual women? And please God, goddess will get that back. Um, so I, I mean, I can't imagine it not being part of it. Sorry. We know quite a bit from them. At least by medieval times, we, we know quite a bit about what they were doing, what they were using, and how they were using it in the various different ways they were using it. Right. And in terms of the ancient Israelite women, I know that now uh, there's a lot of work being done to bring that back, to bring back that tradition and to find the little nuggets where we get in the text something and pull that in. And, you know, that's, that's the work that I'm trying to do. Yeah, and you brought up Maimonides before, and I, I believe Maimonides said that cannabis was the most used plant medicine of his day. Uh, so you're you're totally correct about that. Well, you're you're in Egypt in the 11th century, so why wouldn't it be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> or any century for that matter. <laughs> and as far as the kane, and I prefer to pronounce it kana because of the uh, uh, derivation as part of a word cluster, and it seems like. Uh, if a hundred different cultures are using the same word the same way, there's going to be a little bit of variation on how it's pronounced in one culture to another. I think we're looking at just a variation in the pronunciation a slight bit there, but I think it comes from the Kana root because of these word clusters and because, uh, it, like Chris said earlier, you give the name to something that from where you got it from. So if you're going to buy a little four-string instrument from Hawaii, you're going to call it an ukulele like they did, even though it's not one of your words. All of a sudden, you've got a Hawaiian word because you've got an ukulele. And I think that uh, we're dealing with primary and secondary meanings uh, coming uh, to, to shift uh, how the word is used. Uh, we have this common in any language. For example, in English, people use the word Hoover for vacuum cleaner, but Hoover is actually a brand name that came to take over the whole commodity. The name is, so you're going to Hoover something, you're going to vacuum something. Uh, We do it in uh, Canadian American with the word Kleenex instead of tissue. You're going to get a Kleenex. Kleenex is actually the brand name. So cannabis being the most 
dominant and most reliable fiber in so many different cultures, you can see how cannabis can become the word for, for plant or reed or fiber or those type of materials in common usage because it's the standard one of it's it's the best reference and it's one that's most commonly known across cultural variations. So it ends up taking the multiple roles. I'd like to uh, have Danny. Uh, we haven't had Danny uh, give us his give us his take yet. So Danny, jump in there. Yeah, I've got like um, a whole load of things came up as you were talking. Um, the question, the last question that was asked was about um, what we might call today religious or spiritual use and recreational use. And we know from other uh, resins used in the Bible that there were those things. An example would be myrrh, which is one of the four ingredients that Chris listed before of the anointing oil, right? So you have that used in the anointing oil and, and then there are taboos on this oil, you know? If you uh, make up this oil or if you put it up on a stranger, there are grave uh, taboos about this. I think one of them is you get cut off from the tribe and the other one is you get killed. So this is really, really serious and this is not to be used by anyone except priests and kings in that particular formulation. However, if you look at like um, Proverbs 7:56, for example, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. So we've got a really clear reference there to myrrh being used for one of its, uh, one of its other properties, which is uh, as an aphrodisiac. And I, I, and I also want to come back to, and you see, you see other references to those, to those, to that herb being used in different places. Also, if you look at the, the New Testament, when Christ is on the cross, he gets offered myrrh in wine, which is a pretty clear indication of its use as a painkiller as well. Something I wanted to bring up, you know, we, we is the degree of skill that the ancient Israelites had in their tech, right? Because I mean, the one thing is the hot box itself which is fantastically constructed machine it was uh, it's given five chapters in the bible um, exactly where all the pins go and where all the posts go and it's got four different um fabrics holding uh, holding it down like completely uh, making it into a hot box making it into a sealed chamber and one of those fabrics was used to make shoes as well so it's a kind of leather which is super thick but even more amazing than that i think it's amazing is the other things that went into that into that mixture, right? So we have, you have four things there. You've got myrrh, you've got cinnamon, you've got cassia, and you've got cannabis. And it's pretty clear that myrrh, we're not myrrh is, cinnamon is cinnamon verum, and cassia is cinnamon cassia, right? And these are really interesting, super, super interesting uh, substances. The cinnamon is used in Persian medicine as a carrier medicine, and, and, and modern, uh, microbiology, modern studies into cinnamon, exactly how cinnamon works, is it inhibits four out of the five cytochrome enzymes, which are charged with breaking down the drugs that you encounter in your daily life. So 99% of the drugs you encounter are metabolized by five different cytochrome enzymes out of the, out of the wide set of cytochrome enzymes there are. And four of those are inhibited by cinnamon and one of those, the one that isn't inhibited, is inhibited by cassia, right? And in fact, the cassia is, um, is not quite so powerful. It doesn't, have, um, uh, it, it doesn't have as much of the active ingredient, this inhibitor in it, that the, cinnam that the cinnamon, cinnamon verum has. And in the recipe, you've got twice as much cassia as you've got cinnamon. So it's, um, I, I find that fascinating. So, so, so what we're talking about here is something quite similar to ayahuasca in the way that 
if you, if you eat DMT, if you eat spoonfuls of DMT, it's not going to do much for you. Uh, and if you take harmine, harmaline, and the beta-carbolines, what that will do is inhibit certain enzymes in your body, the monoamine oxidases, so it's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And what that means is that it allows the DM, well, if you take that on its own, it might make you feel a bit kind of big and strong. It does have some effects, but the combination of those two is completely different to the sum of the parts. And that's because the in inhibition of those enzymes allows the DMT to get to your brain and do all kinds of funky things. Now we're talking about something quite similar there in this oil, which is used in the tabernacle. Cause you've got the cinnamon and cassia together. Those two things completely knock out the, def the, 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 your defense system uh, against, against all kinds of, or pretty much all the drugs you're going to encounter. So, and then you've also got the myrrh, which has got three different uh, furanosequestive, so I can't even say that. Um, the opioid receptor agonist, it's got, it's got some uh, three different ones. One of them has been tested. It's got 10% the uh, power of morphine in painkilling. And, um, and, and a whole load of other things that go into myrrh. But one thing that's also very interesting about myrrh is both myrrh and cinnamon, they contain beta caryophylline, which is, which is a, a CB2 receptor uh, inducer. Basically, it makes, it makes one of the cannabis receptors more receptive to cannabis, right? And that's in myrrh, and it's also in cinnamon. So we've got some really, and, and what that means is if you mix it with cannabis, then it makes the cannabis hit you harder and last for longer, and also hit in other different ways, you know? Um, and we haven't even started talking about the frankincense, which was found in the, in the discovery at the shrine, because the, the synergies between frankincense and cannabis uh, maybe we'll get onto them in a bit, are, are, are fascinating as well in the way that they work. Um, so I, I think we just kind of want to um, just bear in mind that this kind of uh, enzyme inhibition wasn't discovered in, until, the, until the 20th century uh, in European cultures. It was discovered way back when in shamanic countries, uh, in, in shamanic places in, in the Amazon. And then you've got this tradition, which goes all the way back to Israel. And in fact, it goes back even further because the Egyptians were exporting an oil called the Mendesium. <coughs> from the Middle Bronze Age, and that's the mixture of what? It's a mixture of myrrh, cinnamon, and cassia. So they already had a deep understanding, a functional understanding of enzyme inhibition. Interesting. Can it, the cinnamon also increases core dilation, and cassia increases blood circulation. And when you're using this as a topical, as you did in the anointing oil, that's going to help it absorb through the lipophilic fat skin uh, Lipophilic is uh, means fat loving. Can the cannabinoids are fat loving, and the skin is uh, over half fat, so it helps to absorb it that way. And there's a caution there, actually. Um, if any of you at home decide you want to uh, mix up this oil and put it on your body, bear in mind that uh, it, it does very much increase blood flow and increases it because it's spicy. So if you do end up rubbing it on yourself, be careful you don't rub it in over intimate places because it can really, really sting. <laughs> and I think Hebrew society needs to be credited be with being the first society to ever create vaporization devices. I think that the portable tent of meeting was exactly that. You take a tent under the desert sun and have it anointed with the uh, anointing oil formula as described in Exodus 30, and you're basically going to have cannabis concentrate over an entire tent, and you're going to go spend hours inside that. You're getting cannabis vapor, the very first vaporization. They invented it. Give them credit. Well, the Scythian threw it on hot rocks, but raw cannabis in this case, so maybe yeah. the first dabbers. <laughs> yeah, um, the first I wanted to say something about uh, 
you know, we were talking about Maimonides and the 11th century, 12th century. Uh, in Libra 420, my last book, I take a look at uh, a Jewish alchemists from about 11th, 12th century, and uh, they were making quintessences with cannabis and other plants, stuff like that. Quintessences were basically alcoholic tinctures. Quintessence means the fifth essence, and the fifth essence was kind of like the spirit, you know? And uh, the alcohol was viewed as like a heaven, and the spirit of the plant could be imbued into that heaven and then be compounded and and made quite powerful. And uh, we know of that. And also in the Jewish magical tradition, uh, we have uh, numbers of accounts in uh, magic attributed to Solomon, uh, in the, I think, fourth century, the Testament of Solomon, hemp, hemp, uh, a demon is made by Solomon to make hemp ropes for the temple. And in the uh, 12th, 13th century uh, text, uh, Sefer, Raziel, Liber, Salomonis, uh, um, the, uh, uh, in order to see visions in a mirror, uh, uh, the individual is prescribed to mix cannabis and I uh, forget what the other plant was, oh, Devil's Trumpet or something like that. It's kind of unclear exactly. It might be a nightshade or something. Uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, um, and that would enable the <coughs> devotee to see a vision in the scrying mirror. So used in a very similar way to the tent of the meeting. And we also have like the 13th century Picatrix where a cannabis, and this is an Islamic document, but also a lot of uh, Jewish and Influences and other cultural influences, where about a pound of cannabis resin is used in a, a suffumigation ritual to see a vision of the messenger of the moon in a pillar of smoke, much the same way uh, that it was used in the tent of the meeting as the Shekinah and the pillar of smoke for Yahweh. So continued use, similar use, and uh, also it was a very pricely item. It wasn't for common people. You know, all accounts of Kanabu, Kanabasum, the trade routes, all that type of stuff, make it pretty clear this was not uh, something that was cheap to get. So then we have to, at some point, and this is way out of my area, but at some point, because as uh, Reverend Lawson said, I mean, you know, in Genesis, uh, you know, Yahweh gave you all the herbs of the earth to use, so people were using it. But at some point, I agree with uh, Chris and Danny that, you know, it became something uh, that was restricted to the priestly class. Uh, Bennett, though, real quick, you brought up um, Solomon, and I wanted to uh, use that to uh, springboard into an ancient entheogen that we haven't brought up yet, which appears in the Old Testament twice, which is mandrake. Mandrake yeah. is used like one. crazy. I mean, there is tons of evidence for mandrake in the ancient world, and medieval world for that matter. And as somebody, I, I use mandrake, and it is highly powerful entheogenically. Um, so I don't know if it, we wanted to maybe discuss that. Other well, you, you brought up, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Gnostic reference or a Christian reference to mandrake in an anointing oil uh, in your book, I believe, didn't you? Mandrake in a Gnostic... Uh, the only or Christ, early Christian, early Christian. Oh yeah. Oh um, uh, no. The uh, the through Patrokhoholid from uh, that's from uh, around 1160 of the Common Era, uh, where the guy okay. has. I mean, they literally write about mandrake in these entheogenic mystery terms. It's pretty remarkable, like how they compare not just the the root of mandrake itself, but the intoxicating properties they compare to Jesus Christ. It's it's pretty remarkable. 
but we're still in the ancient world now. So, um, you know, uh, you have Josephus who mentions uh, Mandrake and how it was used to cast out demons. Um, also, there's the story of Solomon's ring. We had a Mandrake in there, and I believe that's symbolic as well for, you know, pulling a demon out of a possessed person. And uh, in the Gospel of Luke, when, you know, Jesus says, you know, go out and use these ointments on demon-possessed people, he could be talking about a cannabis ointment, but he could very well also be talking about a Mandrake ointment. The, you know, I think in the Christian period, there was use of more than just cannabis in some of these anointing oils from the descriptions and stuff like that, in Gnosticism particularly. And sorry to interrupt you, Danny. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say was, um, as far as I'm aware, the Mandrake reference in the Bible is the wives of Jacob. and right. their, yeah. yeah, that's right. And they're kind of, um, it's, it's used as, as bartering. Uh, one, uh, one of them uh, picks, uh, picks it up. And the one wife of Jacob says, well, you've taken my husband. You're going to take my mandrakes as well. And she says to him, well, it's all right. You can sleep with our husband tonight in return for those mandrakes. So again, uh, re relating to the, uh, potentially relating to the aphrodisiac um, quality. Right. But there's loads, I mean, there's, there's stacks of drugs in the Bible. Um, I mean, we can get onto manna uh, perhaps. And I mean, that's a bit more speculative. But this pillar of smoke that we're talking about here, we're not just talking about cannabis here. We're talking about, um, a range of different ingredients. And what we've got, what have we got? We've got, we've got Stacta, which is myrrh. We've already talked about that. Works on the opioid system. We've got Galbanum, which also works on the opioid system. Um, you've got Saffron, which was, it's described as quite like uh, opium, that stuff. Saffron's got something called crocin in it. And if you give that to rats, it gives them more erections than otherwise. And it also alters their mount behavior. So then we, again, we've got this kind of aphrodisiac effect of Saffron. You've got oh, Stipanard, yeah. And Costas, uh, both of those, those are, I'll come back to them. And you've got things that work on the, on the GABA system as well, which is onica and frankincense. And then you've got agar wood or oud, which has got something like 300. I don't know any of these words in English. I've got to find them now because I only know this in Hebrew. Give me a moment. Okay. Um, Exodus 30 which is where you'll find them. Um, Thank you. Um, and then oud, which is, I mean, that, that's really popular in Saudi Arabia and a whole lot of Arab countries. It's fantastic stuff, oud, but it's got 300 different compounds uh, uh, in it. And, and all of these things, again, these were taken immediately after. So what, so what happens in the, in, the, in, in, in the Holy of Holies, or in the tabernacle, rather, is all the priests go in. They all get anointed with this oil. And when we talk about anointing, the word is, I think Risha will, uh, will say this better than me, but uh, mashach. Uh, which means to wipe or to paint in Hebrew. It's where we get it's where the word Mashiach comes from, which comes down to the word Messiah, the anointed one. So they get massaged. It's actually where our word massage comes from through the Arabic apparently as well. So they're massaged with this stuff. They're in, they're, their enzymes are inhibited. And then what happens is most of the priests, they go off and they eat something called showbread, right? Showbread looks, or the bread of presences it's called. Um, that seems to be psychoactive in itself because in the Talmud, there's this, there's this fantastic line from the Talmud, actually, which talks about how, um, how in the time of uh, high priest Simeon, each priest received the, the, uh, uh, a piece the size of an olive and was satiated. And later on, they, after high priest Simeon, clearly the guy didn't know how to mix his medicines very well. And the showbread they received was the size of a bean. And some of them refused it. And some of them were voracious and consumed. And in one case, there was a guy who, uh, who took his friends also and ate that as well. So this is what most of the priests do. But then the high priest on his own 
goes back into the Holy of Holies, into this hot box. It's four and a half meter cubed um, chamber. And then he burns massive quantities, handfuls of finely ground incenses. Uh, and this is after the enzymes have already been inhibited. So there's a whole load of, um, of psychopharmacology to be unpacked there and to be thought about. Impressive. And then what happens when it's all together? You know, for all we know, this is kind of like a, an ayahuasca thing where when you mix them all together, you get a totally different reaction that well, you would really example, know here's, about. Here's one thing we do know. We know that frankincense, uh, which is in the incense, works on the trip V3 ion channels, right? And they are connected in the skin. They're involved in temperature reception. But in the brain, uh, it's not that clear what they do, but we know that they're involved with migraine in migraine with aura. So you've got migraines with aura, you've got migraines without aura. Migraines with aura are the trip V3 iron channel, which is what frankincense, uh, frankincense works on. Um, and what that means is that the aura is the, uh, the period before a migraine when all kinds of crazy things happen. It happens with epilepsy as well, which is also mediated, also has something to do with this, uh, with the same iron channel, the frankincense one. Now with the aura, uh, aura symptoms are things like hearing, um, hearing noises, uh, sense of deja vu, terror, um, elation, and something which I find fascinating is that um, sometimes the same figure will appear, you know, and this is reliable. People know that they're going to have an epileptic fit because they meet whatever, Auntie Gertrude, who's passed on, or they meet something. So if you are trying to summon a specific angel, and I'm not saying these angels are just uh, drug experience, that's not what I'm saying at all. But if you're trying to summon a specific angel... Um, then these are the kind of um, the ions, the, the ion channels in the brain you want to be working on, this, this uh, trip V3 ion channel. We also, uh, Bennett pointed this out many years ago, and I agree with him. Um, frankincense in the ancient world, in many cases, was not the kind of frankincense that we have today that you buy in a store, at least according to certain Greek descriptions of it, where, uh, if I remember correct, I think it's Ovid and Plutarch, they talk about people getting really intoxicated off of frankincense. Uh, and the descriptions of it would lead anybody to believe that they're not talking about the kind of stuff that we might be aware of of um and i don't know if bennett wants to add to that because he was the one that first brought it to my attention yeah yeah well professor uh, george luck he wrote about that uh, um you know he didn't know about the can of Boston references and he wrote about um uh, uh, the role of that and there's there is active chemicals in it that have some sort of similar to some of the endocannabinoids and are supposedly go to the same receptors and there's uh any depressive properties, you know, and in regards to like, you know, when we're talking about effects, I think that's really important when we're talking about religion, you know what I mean? Because this led to, to religion and it's not, you know, we don't just see entheogens in the beginning uh, of the Hebrew religion, we, you know, the Hindu religion is based on the Vedic religion, which starts with Soma, Zoroastrians, which are nearby, Haoma, and the use of cannabis under the terms Banga and Mang and Zoroastrian literature as well. It was used as a entheogenic substances. But let's take a look at a, a quote from Paul Johnson's uh, 1987 book, A History of the Jews. Prophets practice ecstasy and states may have used incenses and narcotics to produce impressive effects. The Israelite prophets acted as mediums in a state of trance or frenzy. They related their divine visions in a sing-song chant, at times a scream. These states could be induced by music, but the prophets also used and sometimes abused incense, narcotics, and alcohol. So the use of psychoactive substances in these states, this is where a lot of the holy literature is written 
comes from. And a lot of ancient texts, uh, uh, religious texts, are actually written in poetry type of versions, you know. And they would use cannabis and other psychoactive substances to induce this kind of state. And there'd be like drums beating a beat, music playing along, and a rhythm would get going. And then after a while, they'd start spitting verses like a hip-hop guy after smoking a blunt and the influence of that in musical culture, which is so widespread it can't be denied. But it's the right brain kind of trance. And this is the origins of religion. And this really fits well with Julian Jaynes' incredible theory laid out in the origins of uh, consciousness and the breakdown of, uh, by Camaro Mind. I think Terrence McKenna's greatest, Terrence McKenna's greatest contribution to the research around entheogens was his tying in Julian Jane's theory with the Stone Age theory. And I think what we're really seeing here with this rediscovery of psychoactive substances in the ancient world, now we have Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Taoism, uh, uh, um, all these different religions that have used cannabis, like Asian and Syrian texts, you know what I mean? Major influence. And it really ties into that because it kind of brings out the voice inside the head, which is thought. And this is also tied in with right brain, poetry type of things. And that state can be induced with rhythmic uh, patterns and psychoactive substances. And it is being reproduced in modern hip-hop culture. I want to jump in here with something as well, which is one of the words for the Holy of Holies is uh, Dabir, I think, which is related to the word Dabar, which is word in Hebrew. And that comes from a root in Hebrew, which is to line up in order or to put into rank, which is really what we're doing when we're putting, we're putting word into meter. We're lining up concepts and thoughts all into, all, into, uh, all, in, all into order, basically. And there's something else quite interesting, which is spikenard, which is one of the, uh, one of the things in the incense. And in fact, when, when Christ uh, is, is that basically the, the apostles use um, a whole load of money to buy some spikenard and Judas complains and he says, we should, this is a waste of money. We should be giving this to the poor. And um, anyway, so this is spikenard. Spikenard, one of the things it does is it boosts dopamine in your brain and dopamine is involved in language production. So it would be superb for, uh, you know, rapping or anything involving the production, production of words. I'll add something in here as well now. Uh, Tom and Danny uh, both mentioned earlier uh, that, there are different ingredients other than just the cannabis and sometimes the references we have for it are obscure. Uh, in fact, sometimes the references are intentional uh, misdirection and that they're not actually what was involved at all. Uh, for example, Pliny talks about the therapeutic and their entheogenic bread. They said that they had herbs and he said that they had hyssop, flavored with hyssop, but uh, it wasn't hyssop in there. Uh, for the active ingredients, but he's not going to say what the active ingredients were because he wouldn't know, or if he did know, he'd be forbidden from telling it. Uh, it's not lawful to reveal the secret ingredients. Paul mentioned this, uh, uh, whether it's lawful uh, to tell you about these heavenly ascent experiences or not. I don't know if it's lawful for me to tell you, says Paul. And he says, I knew a man, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure. And he talks about his whole heavenly ascent experiences. Uh, and from the same time period, we've got the Dead Sea Scroll community, and they had uh, sacred initiations. Uh, they had three levels of initiation, and if you were advanced to the highest level of initiation, then you got a separate sacred meal, and your bread was different than what the rest of the group got. And 
what whatever was in there gave them experiences that led to the writing and the poetry and the songs again the putting word to verse are the songs of the sabbath sacrifice which is nothing more than a detailed explanation of someone's heavenly ascent experience to the heavenly sanctuary in the throne room of god so that's quite right about Pliny writes about openly about other psych, psychoactives, though. Like he's where he has no problem saying the name at all. Just to throw that out there, like he's he mentioned by name. It depends on the time period that they're writing. Uh, the Romans I mean, Pliny, have Pliny, the same writer reads in the mysteries. If you were to go and tell uh, the people in the uh, the if you were to do what Doctor Rock did in uh, the Road to Eleusis and elaborate exactly what was used in the drink Kakean, the water extract of uh, ergot, and uh, let people know what the actual ingredients were, that you'd get killed for that in the ancient world. But that's... So we have that I, in, I, a, in, in a rabbinic tradition around the incense itself. You know, it says in, in Talmud, in the tractate Yoma, that the, the house of Aftinos, they were the ones who were responsible for putting together the incense. So even though we might have a list of the ingredients from the Bible and then later from rabbinic tradition, they had a very unique way of how they put it together. They had a very special way of how they even, even they, they even chanted as they were, this is one of the modern rituals I'm trying to get people to take on today. I'm saying they had to chant, make it fine, make it fine as they ground it. I tell people to do that while they grind. Um, but as they were doing this, they had such a secret, this family that they refused to give it over to anybody to the point that the rabbis were bringing in craftsmen uh, or experts from Alexandria to try and figure out the secret recipe and they were not giving it away because they said, this is a sacrament. If anybody else learns the secret, then anyone can replicate this experience. And that's not what they were looking for. Sure, but that's not what was going on at Eleusis, to get back to what uh, Reverend Lawson just said. Um, the the, the uh, possibility of ergot at Eleusis is slim to none. Um, I, would, I would update my, my library beyond the road to Eleusis because I don't know if you recall the evidence that's used in the road to, to Eleusis. Do, do you recall, uh, um, Reverend Lawson, what, the, what Ruck and uh, Hoffman and Lawson say was the evidence for Ergot? Because it's, well, pretty, it's pretty horrible as far as evidence goes. Well, you've got representations of uh, uh, Triptolemus and his, uh, uh, his uh, winged chariot and uh, the winged chariot implies the entheogenic experiences that he was taught the secret. Uh, there's a mention about he taught the secrets of uh, uh, Demeter uh, and, and Kor. Uh, they, uh, and this would be the, the secrets would be both the secrets of agriculture, but presumably the secrets of the mystery within the drink Kakian. Uh, then there's the barley growing around there, which had the, the ergot issue. I don't know. Uh, but that, that's that's not what the secret of Eleusis was. And as far as what was in the Kaikian, Kaikian for everybody out there uh, listening, is just a Greek verb which means the mix. And we can certainly assume that there was something psychoactive in there because Circe, who is known for absolutely putting psychoactives in her potions, her potion is also called a Kaikian. Um, but ergot, the that that whole ergot at Eleusis trope needs to go because it, it is palpably incorrect. Uh, there is literally no, the, the evidence that Ruck uses is to say that the Rarian fields where they grew the barley was across the street from the temple. Mm -hmm. 
that's not evidence. I, I grew up, there was a McDonald's across the street from my house. I never went to there once because I don't eat shitty fast food. You know what I mean? Like the proximity to these two things, on top of which we actually have base reliefs of Dem, uh, Persephone rising from the dead, holding opium capsules. In fact, the symbology of opium, wheat, and snakes is found all over the ancient Mediterranean world. I'm not saying that I knew it was in the Kaikion, but I will say that the best chance is for opium not for ergot if for anybody that's ever looked at all of the evidence um go beyond the road to eleusis it's not definitely. as good as people definitely uh but you can also you, know. see, you can also see here uh greek vase uh this is a representation of the throne chariot uh that uh it, the throne chariot has nothing to do with eleusis uh, i understand no, but but I want you to You're know, mixing and matching different Greek traditions to make yes, a I, Yes, yes I am, but I'm, I'm bringing up uh, side evidence. Note the barley as being connected with the entheogenic uh, wind barely grows on barley, though. It is more used to growing on rye. Yes, it can grow on barley, but it, that's it not what it's known for growing on. You have to admit there's no proof that th these were suggestions. And, and I think I think the novelty is to the, the first step, the to very fact that he made the suggestion that there was an entheogen sure. involved in the Greek mystery is the first big step there. And that's a big milestone. Hey, let me give you a quote from Ruck about this recent find here, because uh, I've been in communication. Par Carl Ruck was actually a early supporter of the Cannabossum theory. He actually reviewed my book, Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, in the London, England Sunday Times article, was there with of Cannabossum? It was about Jesus. But uh, here's what he says about this new find. Um, the discovery of cannabis residue on an, altar, on an ancient altar in Israel is presented with amazement by the archaeologists, although one wonders where they have been for the last century. The cannabosum of Exodus was identified as cannabis by Sula Bennett nearly a century ago and has been the subject of numerous works since. Similar archaeological evidence is confirming the use of other drugs in classical Greco-Roman and Judeo-antiquity and is presented by scholar, scholars who apparently come upon their discoveries in vacuo. So that's what Ruck says about the, the latest find. And, you know, great respect to them. I don't agree with a lot of these, uh, you know, some of the early uh, entheogen scholars like Ruck and Wasson and stuff yeah. written about, say, uh, Soma and mushrooms or uh, um, Jerry, Jerry Brown's uh, work with mushrooms and Christianity. Uh, myself, I don't really agree with it, but I think that they did lead the way into the idea that uh, uh, psychoactive substances played a, a, an important role in the origins of religion. And now we know that they did. And that's the real big theological question. Sure, but what, all I'm saying is that we, we can give that, that necessary praise while also not just saying, well, you know, I like what they said, so I have to adopt all of it. If I could just really quick, because this just kind of drives the point home. I don't know if you could see this, but it's Persephone rising from the grave. She's holding snakes, uh, grains, and opium capsules. If there were ever a moment to show that it was ergot, it was whoever made this base relief, and they chose opium instead. There you go. That That is very impressive uh, um, evidence. And I, I'm open-minded to looking at... Uh, uh, what that might be for the all I know is there was an entheogen in use what it was well I don't know and the uh, and and I don't think we can say that we know 
Uh, oh, I, I agree. And, and I think that's, that's to be fair. Uh, and I think we can critique uh, Gord Wasson the same way for his mushroom theories. He saw oh, mushrooms. Yeah. And uh, in fact, uh, Carl uh, said to me, uh, quote, Gord saw mushrooms in everything. You know, so uh, that's Carl Rupp said that about Gord Wasson. And they, they along with uh, uh, the uh, chemistry, the chemist, what was his name? Uh, uh, Albert Hoffman. Hoffman, Albert Hoffman, yeah. Actually, uh, I actually had the ergot. I had the ergot that Hoffman made uh, for the writing of uh, uh, Road to Eleusis in a jar given to me by Carl Ruck uh, with the wow. museum collection, but I sold the museum collection and I went with the wow. uh, museum collection. By the way, if you uh, wish to experience uh, the lysergic acid amide experience that Dr. Ruck was suggesting was in the, the I say kiki and you say kiki, and, uh, but the, uh, the, if you want to experience it, lysergic acid amide is a natural ingredient in morning glory uh, flowers, the heavenly blue variety. Uh, you don't want to get anything that's got pesticide on it or anything like that. Uh, for the average uh, person, about 150 pounds, 40 seeds uh, chewed up. Uh, thoroughly chew it into a paste without swallowing it, allow it to just naturally be swallowed as you're chewing. And uh, that will uh, uh, give you uh, the base effect. I have, I have conducted that experiment myself uh, three different occasions just so that I would be uh, uh, aware of what I'm talking about when I'm, I'm reading people making references that did this and there, it can do that or it can do the other. And, Thank you, uh, Mr. Reverend. What's that? Thank you for your sacrifice, Reverend. Yes, I, 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 also, I also confronted Amanita muscaria uh, on on occasion. But I I want to say to anybody who's watching this, don't do these without supervision and proper uh, uh, professional advice. Uh, when I did the Amanita muscaria, it was under the direction of a professional mycologist who uh, knew about one hundred different types of of uh, psychoactive mushrooms. Uh, and fungi. So uh, he, he carefully made sure that I had all appropriate dosing and done everything properly. So uh, with that said, be careful with these things. Um, I'd like to come in here about um, ergot, things are talking about ergot and then yeah, come Danny, I'm going to step out so I'll let you moderate but take it away. Are you, I have are to you step out for one second. I'm just going to go dark but everything's still here. Okay, cool. Um, so ergot uh, looks very likely to be manna, right? And I'm going to describe exactly why. I'm, I'm going to say why why I think that. The the manna in the uh, in the wilderness story is a, a whole load of things about it suggests the form of ergot. For example, um, you mentioned Hoffman before. In that book, he describes how you would produce ergot, how you produce an LSA uh, consumable LSA uh, from ergot, and the way you do it is you um, you collect it, you grind it, you boil it, and then you bake it, which are exactly the instructions which uh, the Israelite God gives to the Israelites in how you would make ergot. Uh, I, I, I would like to interrupt on that just to be careful, and that's uh, there are three different alkaloids in ergot, and those, ba those consumption instructions will get people dead. Uh, that you need to have a water extraction basis and you siphon the water off because the, yeah, the water is soluble one for the... Uh, for you, you really don't want to uh, mix it all up and then bake it. And no, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to exactly, which is how we know they weren't using it. No, no that, that's not the case. That if you if you dissolve it, this is why you boil it. So if you grind it up and then you and then you put it in water, and then yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. You have to separate off the soluble fraction. You have to, you have to decant it. You need to decant it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you yeah, you're right. Solids, if you include the solids, you're going to die. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. My point. So, so then, okay, so three parts of the process, which is the grinding up and the uh, and the ba and the putting into water and the baking as well. Uh, suggest, suggest, that's, that's one thing that suggests, suggests ergot. And there's a whole lot more as well. I'm just going to run through it. Um, it is, uh, um, it's found, when it's found, it's described as uh, like coriander seed and, uh, and uh, with, the, with the appearance of resin, or with the eye of resin it's called. And it's also described, and, that, and that's how ergot, the ergot secretion, when it comes out of the plant, it dries on the on the plant and it forms these little pellets which are about the size of coriander seed they're the right color and they have this resinous i'm not saying this is uh this is solid this is speculative all right um and when that drips onto the floor if when i got secretion drips on the floor it splashes because unlike uh, other secretions you find in the in the desert this is a really uh, it's not a viscous one so when it hits the ground it splashes and the other description of ergot or rather sorry the other description of manna is that it forms uh, a thin crust a thin flake-like thing on the ground. So we've got that. We've also got the fact that it appears at the right time of the year, which is spring, which is when ergot comes out of its dormancy. And we've also got the fact of the taste. It's described as having the taste of honey, uh, wafers made with honey, and the first stage of ergot secretion, it does actually taste like honey, but it rots very quickly, right? Uh, and it becomes dangerous if it does. So Moses says to the Israelites, let no man leave of it till the morning, notwithstanding they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left it until the morning, and it bred worms and it stank. And then when they have to use it um, for the Sabbath day, what he says is here, collect what you need. Most days collect what you need, but before the Sabbath, collect what you need, and for tomorrow, and then, but boil it tonight for tomorrow, which is a way of uh, both um, kind of preparing it, but also killing the reaction which can, which, produces, um, uh, which, which, which leads to it to, not the reaction, sorry, it, it, it interrupts the process of decay. This stuff is being used, I'll come, I'll come back to you in a second, Tom, but this stuff is being used um, at a particular piece of the Bible. There's only one line in the Bible where the whole of the Israelites together have a, a vision. And in fact, that's very rare in, uh, in ancient scripture. Normally, something will appear to an individual figure, an individual prophet, and then he or she will go and tell everybody else. This is the one bit of the Old Testament where you have the, all of the Israelites uh, see something. What it is, it's, the, uh, it's, um, it's at Sinai, it's, a, it's at Mount Sinai, and they see the, the mountain flame. In fact, I'll read, I'll read the, the verse because it's, it's, it's really interesting. And all the people are seeing the voices and the flames and the sound of the trumpet. And we don't normally see sounds uh, unless we're tripping on something. In fact, that's the only example of synesthesia in the Bible as well. So there's quite a lot. Like, I'm not saying, I'm saying this is speculative. It was Dan Merker who uh, initially speculated this. And he's got a whole load of things about um, trying to find it in um, kind of cryptographic references later, which I don't buy. But um, I think there's a whole load of evidence for that being ergot. Okay, uh, my question would be, and this is where uh, uh, Risha and uh, Danny, you would be far better equipped to answer this than I would be, because I don't know much of the geography of ancient Israel at all, but, I mean, are you saying that there were wheat fields there in the desert? Because there kind of have to be, right? 
No, no, it's not. It doesn't just grow on wheat. It grows on sorghum, for example, which is found in the region. Um, okay. Another thing about it is um, obviously it needs vegetation. So you've got three wildernesses, Midbar Shur, uh, Midbar Sin, and then Midbar Sinai, right? The first one, they don't find any water and they don't find any manna, right? Um, they only find it at the second one, which is where they have got water, which suggests vegetation, which also is a, another point of evidence that it might, might well be that. Okay. Uh, then we I also guess have that Sinai is covered in vegetation, which was okay. unique for the area. Okay, then I guess my follow-up, thank you, thank you. My follow-up question then would be, um, we know that the ancient Hebrews had knowledge of cannabis, we know they had knowledge of opium, we know they had knowledge of mandrake, and we know that they had knowledge of all those other substances uh, that you were talking about earlier, uh, Danny, like the ayahuasca sort of uh, analogs, right? So why would they eschew all of those for the one that makes, potentially, if it's prepared incorrectly, makes your limbs fall off and then kills you. I mean, ergot, ergotism is a horrific disease. I mean, you're, you're, the, the fire's under your skin that's burning. You, you go insane. You sweat profusely. You vomit. You're, you're shitting out, you know, like everything from your body. Why would anybody take that risk? when they could have easily used cannabis, mandrake, opium, or casa, you know, any you, of those You're talking things. about a different time period in terms of- Still kills people, you know, doesn't the, matter. The, well, hang on. I mean, I honestly, I don't know a ton about this. So I'm thinking just in terms of the, the historical evolution is the difference between being a nomadic tribe wandering a desert and being a tribe that's living in a land and cultivating and cultivating, you know, agricultural plants. So, you know, what they were doing in the desert might have had to do with what was available to them rather than, um, now I don't know too much. I have never, I've honestly never been exposed to this mana idea, but I know that there is, there is um, evidence of other types of, you know, entheogenic substances and plants in the Sinai area, you know, this, um, the is around there. And in general, I mean, I don't know, this is a little bit different to how you guys are looking at it, but I don't know if we even need to know what the plant was because as long as we know that the, that the um, what, what, what you were saying, you know, the Kolot of Rakim, that they heard them and they saw them, we know that the experience was, you know, equivalent to an entheogenic experience. And because to me, and I guess this is, you know, as, as a ritualist, I'm always thinking, and what does it mean for us today? It means that there was some aspect of a massive divine download that happened and what medicine they were taking or not taking isn't as relevant as, wow, divine downloads were happening. And through that, we have a tradition that is still alive today. What does that mean for when we have divine downloads today? What does it mean for when I'm working with people in a ceremony? What does it mean for when people are working with a plant on their own? Can they utilize this as a Sinai moment for each other? And I know that that's not necessarily the direction that we want to go in when we're still trying to analyze chemical compounds, but we know that so much changes with chemistry and with um, topology and climate over time. It's hard for us to know what was there. Well, the, the, I, I agree. I don't disagree with anything you just said, Risha. The thing is that we know from ancient sources that Ergot absolutely was a son of a bitch and that it definitely was something to be avoided. And um, there's just, uh, this goes back to that whole thing I was saying earlier about the road to Eleusis. Look, all power to Dan Merker for putting forth this theory that man was an entheogen. But that doesn't mean that we have to buy the entire that he says because most of the mystery of manna which is the book you're talking about is pretty i don't find i find the evidence to be like terribly lacking well, i'm not basing if it on you that. wanted to support it with and i I'm, i have no investment in this theory but i'm just it's just fun to think about support yeah, some directions would be um you know the, the the talmudic tradition about the sinai experience 
is that it was not fun. It was incredibly difficult and challenging and painful. And, you know, it included a vision of a mountain upon people's heads, threatening them with death and uh, people's souls leaving their bodies and all kinds of things. So, sure, but you know, that's very different from ergotism. And, and I, I would suggest you read, read, some, read some accounts of ergotism and what it's actually like, and then tell me all about how the aging <laughs> is reading. We've got, I've got your argument, Tom, but I do want to answer it directly. Right. You're, you're, you're talking about um, people who are spectacularly good at the art of the apothecary, right? Um, we're, not, we're not talking about someone messing around with bananas and banana skins and trying to get high after fiddling around on ergot, uh, on erowid. These are traditions which go back thousands of years before this period. And these were people who really knew what they were doing. We've seen it in, their, in the synergies that they were using. Uh, we've seen it in the way that they're constructing their, um, their machines as well. So, uh, yes, you're right. Ergot can be really, really nasty if you don't prepare it properly. But well, why do we have all those great preparations that you talked about earlier, proving that they understood synergy but nothing for ergot? No, um, well, what Richard says, you know, we've got, we've, got the, we've got the example here of, you know, those preparations require four different, um, four different resins which are going to be brought, you know, to get frankincense, just to put it into perspective, it's 1,500 miles, it's a six-month trek on camels, through the desert with all the bandits that, that are involved. You know, for example, in Babylon, they used a lot of frankincense. They burned two and a half tons of frankincense uh, to, um, to Baal in, um, uh, in Babylon. It was burned in Egypt as well as massive displays of wealth. If you're talking about a nomadic tribe which doesn't have wealth, but does have um, ergot growing all over the place, and they do have fantastic... Uh, um, knowledge of, 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 of this art of combining and this art of, pre of preparation, then hmm, I, I, think, I think we should, uh, it, I think we should take a moment. You think just said they have ergot growing all over the place. Where's the evidence for that? You just said there's ergot all over the place. Where's the evidence for that? Well, I, I, I looked at the distribution of where ergot is found and where sorghum is found. And it's in the right region, and it's in the right, and it's at the right time of year. I'm saying it's so correlation equals causation. Then that's, you know, that's no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's in regards to no, no, in regards to infusions and stuff. In regards to infusions and cannabis and stuff, you know, I'd like to point out too that two different scholars, uh, a century apart. Uh, Vicente Dubaracra out of Brazil, a professor, and George W. Brown have both suggested that in the account of Ezra the cannabis was consumed in an infused wine. And Ezra was a vassal of, uh, of, of Zoroastrian overlords, you know, uh, the Persians. And uh, we know there that cannabis was often used in infused wines from accounts written at the time about Ardu Biraf, who had an out-of-body experience going to heaven and hell, and Vistaspa, uh, Zoroaster's first con uh, convert, a king who's... Uh, 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 journey uh, t seeing the end of the world influenced the apocalyptic visions of Revelation uh, um, as well consumed the cannabis-infused wine, and both of these scholars have suggested this for this, and that seems quite likely. And Emmanuel Lowe, a uh, rabbi who wrote a herbalist, uh, a book on uh, Jewish herbalism back in the 30s, uh, referred to an 11th century recipe for cannabis-infused wines being used by Jews. So it must have been around for quite some time. And that could be a very, very, very powerful way to ingest cannabis. You know, cannabis-infused wines were all over the Asian world. Yeah, I, and I agree with Risha again um, uh, when she said earlier that, um, you know, I think what's more important is was an entheogen used? And at the end of that, and I write about in my book, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's ergot, whether it's opium, whether it's cannabis, that's secondary 
for my purposes. Right. I, I would rather just know if they were using stuff, but for fun's sake and to, you know, intellectually masturbate with some friends, it's fun to talk about this stuff. I would like to inject uh, the thought too, that when you're talking about uh, manna, you have to remember that this is part of a uh, foundation myth story that includes uh, dark night, uh, uh, darkness in the middle of the day, plagues of uh, locusts and all, all these magical things happening. The, uh, and the sea parting and people passing through. Uh, unless you're taking this as a story of faith and you're accepting it uh, uh, and you've been brought up from birth, you're going to have to admit that this is just a, a mythology. And it may be the entire manna story uh, never happened either. Yes. That, yeah. that, that, and we're taking references and descriptions that may have had alternative meanings uh, that have been lost to us. Yes, and I agree that we have no idea why it got into the story. Uh, and uh, to, to take detailed descriptions of it and say, now we've got a match for this chemical, unless uh, those details are obvious to anybody who looks at it, uh, it sounds like special pleading to me. And, 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 at, and at most, at most reliable of being speculative. It may be right, but it's just speculation that can't be proven. And I think that we need to, to have uh, uh, credibility. We need to avoid speculations that are vulnerable to criticism. Uh, for example, uh, look at John Allegro and his Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, how he took everything, he, uh, every linguistic term, and, and, and spun it uh, in some linguistic way. He would say, oh, uh, the reference to uh, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, and Jonah comes from this and that sound. That sounds a lot like the Akkadian, and that sounds like the Sumerian. And the problem with Allegro, he knew 17 different ancient languages. He was a master linguist. And so he had all these references going in his head, but he, he, he forgot that the average person doesn't know any of that. And that when you're reading the, and you hear these words, uh, they're not making those connections that it means those things. They're just using the word the way it's used in their culture. So we can go too far by jumping on the linguistic bandwagon down a rabbit hole uh, when there's no rabbit there to be found. Yeah, and, and one of the I'd like to hear from McGill. I'd like to hear from McGill. You know, McGill, you've been studying, you know, religion, Gnosticism, uh, um, and, and the religious experience for a long time. And talk to all the world experts all over the globe, you know what I mean? All the, the, all the important people on this subject. What do you think of this discovery and what its implications are? <clears throat> yeah, I'm enjoying listening a lot. But I think, uh, like many of us here, even more modern scholars are starting to accept. And this sort of reinforces. It's not the resistance that was before. Like I can say, for Gnostic studies, you know, 20, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about that. Now these days they're putting out books and say, yeah, the book of you, it's got a, the ingredients for psychotropic. So Marcus the Magician, he was with his witches and they were definitely getting high and what the church father said. So I think uh, academia is certainly much more open. I mean, it's part of the entire vibe of the world we are today. And I think... Uh, it's it's better for all of us for sure so uh it's great to hear and again it's, this is a movement scholars are more open it's a good that researchers like you guys have been on the edge and pounding this for a long time and uh 
it's again, it's good to see that the world is changing despite this, <laughs> despite how bad the world is going. This is good news for all of us and for humanity in total. We need more cannabis. So good job. As I guess that's that my question would be, so any of you want to address is what happened to, I think the Reverend Lawson was saying that it sort of disappeared. Uh, what happened to the entheogen use? Chris and I, you, you and I have talked about it many times, but what other voices? Why did entheogen sort of become washed out from uh, religion? Elder Rad answers that question. The, the very thing that we're discussing right now gives us an answer. It's because that this discovery, the timing of it, uh, when was this temple or the shrine put out of service? Well, it fits with the timing of Hezekiah. And uh, very important for those who are watching this program or listening to it, get your Bibles out and read 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, because there is the description how Hezekiah was supposed to, he, he got new rules. Apparently, uh, apparently the high priest, uh, quote, found a, a lost book of the law at this time. Now it's a, and, and they, they read through it and say, keepers, we, we didn't know this rule before. We didn't know that rule before. It sounds like the creation of the uh, Deuteron Deuteronomist version of the Torah. So if you're familiar with the uh, uh, Yahwist, Elohist, uh, priestly school and Deuteronomist school and development of the Torah, this is the Deuteronomist period. And this, this seems to be the, uh, when our, our version of the Torah came into being and had new rules. And, and right at this time, it specifically says that they were opposing Moses' religion. They were saying, we don't like Moses' religion anymore. In this reform, Moses was a bad guy to the Jews. How did that happen? They actually went and they got something that supposedly was made by Moses or the, 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 uh, the story uh, in Numbers 22, Moses made a serpent on a pole. They were getting bit by snakes. And uh, this, by the way, is another cannabis reference. Uh, for multiple reasons, a serpent on a pole is very similar to uh, a Slepian staff, and that included healing with cannabis, etc., and, and antigen use. Plus, the, uh, the fact that it's linked to healing snake bites. Even to this day, uh, as uh, James Frazier uh, rightly noted, uh, in his book, uh, The Golden Bough. Yeah, the Golden Bough. Yeah, the, uh, uh, that the Mafengu tribe to this day used poultices of cannabis bud to uh, take out the poisons of, of snake bites. And in India, it fights cobra bites. So the, uh, you want a poultice of cannabis buds to save your life in a case like that. The fact that this uh, device from Moses uh, would heal their snake bites, again, shows a link to a cannabis cultus. And uh, uh, it, it seems that this is being, was being revised at the time of Hezekiah and the time of the Tel Arad shrine was being disabled. And the, uh, the timing of that's very significant. And, and, and it means that there was a new version of the Judaic religion being born at that time and being promoted from the centralized group. And Presumably, King Hezekiah was trying to set uh, to uh, secure his position by getting rid of competing uh, cultist sites at other places outside of Jerusalem. And this, 
the, the Bible exaggerates uh, the description of his efforts, saying that he even went up to the northern kingdom in Samaria and he destroyed sites there, which is preposterous. Uh, Hezekiah would not have dared to fight Sargon, who was at the peak of his power, and would not have been taking any, tolerating anybody, interfering with what's going on outside of uh, Hezekiah's own little domain. Hezekiah, would that would have been a, 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 a suicidal thing for Hezekiah to do. So it is, it, that is not history. So you're, you're talking about this, particularly this time period, like with Arad, but I think if we zoom out, you know, in history, we always have ebbs and flows and things move in. And even if in the Bible itself, you know, just the book of Kings is always, let's destroy the idolatry. Let's bring it back. Let's destroy it. Who knows what's actually going on? You know, how many Asherot there are going on throughout the country versus what's happening, you know, at the temple. But I think um, if you were going to ask me, you know, where did the use go? I would say, I don't think it ever really went away. I think that we have enough mystic tradition from, you know, you have like the, uh, the Chassidei Ashkenaz, I don't know how you translate it, the pious, the pious ones of like the uh, um, German sort of area of like, you know, 11th century. And then you have the mystics in Spain and, and, and you have the Hasidic movement as, as late as, you know, the last 250 years. And we don't have evidence, but we have enough references to um, different kinds of mystic states. We have references to, you know, I know that I have friends who sort of specialize in this area. My friend Joseph Needleman has written a whole book, Cannabis Chasidus, and he talks all about, you know, was were the pioneers of the later Jewish mystic states of the Hasidic movement, were they, what were they smoking in their pipes? We know that they had pipes and they had mystical states. And I often argue it doesn't matter what they were smoking in their pipes. They were wandering around the Carpathian Mountains Hanging out with the shamans. They knew plants. Well, there's something, if I could just piggyback off something uh, Risha said, because I agree totally. And I think that you just brought up a really, really, really excellent point. And that's that uh, they didn't go away. They changed over time. The problem is when we find, let's say from this first period, let's say um, Hebrews living in the first century, let's say whatever, they used cannabis in a certain way. And then we're looking at Hebrews in the 4th or 5th century. And instead of looking how they used cannabis in the 4th or 5th century, we're looking for clues of how they used it in the 1st century because they're still Hebrews. What, we're, uh, what people overlook, and I'm so happy that you said that, Risha, is that the use of these things and how they're used changes over time. So you can't go looking in the 1st century. Even if you're still talking about the Hebrews, you can't look in the 1st century for how 5th century Hebrews were using cannabis. Fair. I think we can say from that particular period, and this is a question for, the, for, the, for, for everyone, really, um, we know that about 30, kilo, um, 30 k's away from this particular site, there's another site. It's called uh, Kirbet el-Kum, um, and, and it's about the same period, um, 750 BC, there's a dig that uncovered cannabis being used uh, as, I think it was a temple to Asherah. Um, I think it was burned to Asherah there. And I'm, I'm, well, my question is, I'm, I'm, there's, there's two altars in this particular shrine, right? And you get two altars, you get that in the, um, you get that in the tabernacle, for example, but one of them is for a burnt offering and one of them is for incense. You, I, I'm not sure if there's two incense altars found in, in shrines generally. And I wonder if that, and again, um, don't shoot me down for speculating here, but I wonder if that might uh, indicate that there were two gods being worshipped at the same time. Or and, a god and god. <laughs> god, god. I've gone straight to the logistics of, you, you know, they, they did an animal sacrifice 
sacrifice and they put a pan of incense down at the end of it as part of the as part of the sacrifice just like they pour the oil they pour the wine they pour down the pan of incense sorry if that's a little too rabbinic for you no no i didn't understand it Say again. Uh, well i i'm not an expert in like the sacrificial rituals but i'm pretty sure that if if incense was offered along with um most of the animal sacrifices it would be you know, you, you, you put your animal up on the up on the fire to sort of roast and then you pour oil, you pour wine and you put down a pan of coals for, for incense in the same space at the same time. It's sort of a joint ritual. Well, no, I mean, in the tabernacle, you have where you offer the burnt offering is outside of the Holy Holies. Then you go in. Right. No, that, that's where you have, you know, the two different. You've got the gold, the gold uh, altar and, and, and the and the bronze one, the copper one. I- I highly doubt that there was any standardization in that time period. Uh, first of all, you look at the desecrations of, of Beersheba versus Tel Arad, and in Beersheba, the horned altar was actually broken to pieces and then put into a wall and used as a building material, so it was desecrated. Whereas uh, Tel Arad, the incense altars were carefully laid on their sides in a very plain place on each side of a staircase, and it looked like it was kind of done reluctantly and set so that and, and there are sacred uh, objects put in one corner and buried and covered carefully so that they weren't destroyed later. Uh, so it tells me that the people who were taking uh, the orders, apparently, that they were receiving to uh, dismantle this, I think the Hezekiah story has credibility, uh, were doing so reluctantly with the idea that, you know, well, with this king, he's saying, uh, we can't do this cultus here, but the next king might change his mind and we don't want to have to have everything wrecked. We might be able to retrieve it if things change quickly enough or if the king changes his mind before his reign is done. And things like that happen in different priesthoods where they resisted royal orders from one place to another uh, because they didn't know uh, uh, how the longevity of these preferences. Uh, for example, uh, famous uh, King Tut, Tutankhamun, was he uh, the favor? favored one of, of Aachen or the favored one of Aten. It depends on which side of the throne that you read. It says Aten on the front and uh, the opposite on the back. So uh, the, it depends on which priesthood uh, was ruling at the same time. So you got not only got the royal lines, but you got the priesthoods uh, who are dominating from time to time that make a difference in how things are done. I don't think any of this was standardized yet at this time. And we've so The got, reforms are pretty clear, you know. The reforms are pretty clear. It's like what was taken out of the temple, Asherah, the brazen yeah. serpent with people burning incense to. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of this symbolism is like uh, the stuff that's all around Eden. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, you know, and, and we have artifacts from the time period, archaeological artifacts testifying to Asherah and Yahweh's marriage and uh, a right. relationship, you know. And I think this is one of the biggest crimes of the ancient world was the suppression of the divine feminine yes. in place of yes. uh, a pure male God. And this is why we're at this point in the world we're at right now, is because of this patriarchal worldview that denied the divine feminine. And this plant coming back right now, man, it is the divine feminine. It's a, you know, the female plant that we're using. This, can, this cannabis plant is full of female energy. It was oh, yeah. used in... Bella Bennett, one of the things she said, that the original use of cannabis in the Near East began with the matriarchal worship, you know? And this goes way back, you know, the early references to its use with Ishara, the prototypical Near Eastern goddess who gave rise to Ishtar, Asherah, and other Near Eastern deities as the mother goddess 
that goes back so far in history. And that's likely where this original use of cannabis came and spread from. You also have the, oh, may I just jump in real quick to piggyback over Chris said, and then I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, Chris, I agree with you 100%. You know, I agree with you 100%. I, my my uh, alt of the guy is right behind me. Um, but there was also, and, and, and to, to uh, 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 bolster what you just said, there were also the herald worshipers in Greece. And as you know, um, they used the word asterion. I mean, the, the Greek word was cannabis, but this highly localized name for cannabis was asterion, which has yeah. that that Asherah, that, that, you know, phenomic kind of similarity to it. Now, that doesn't mean that's where they come from, but we do know Pasianus did say that they were using Asterion, the, the, the priestesses of Hera. So I just wanted to, you know, uh, uh, bolster what you said. Sorry, Dr. Lawson. Indo-European goddesses as well, you know? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and you, you never know, too, with the word Asteria, whether or not there's uh, links to the word star, cannabis, Star. Well, that's, that's exactly what it is. Well, then you've also got, you know, the plural of would be Ashtarot. Yeah. And you've got Ishtar as well. That hysterium came from the word womb. We get the word Ashtarot. Hysterium means little star. And you've got Shishat of the Egyptians, the goddess of wisdom and measurement, is always presented as having a cannabis family for Bavar, which for many years archaeologists were interpreting as being a star. But clearer images make it very clear, however, that it was a cannabis plant. Yeah. So, and because of these crossovers in language, uh, I think sometimes one word became a generic term and we take it as a specific. And uh, that can happen uh, uh, with, with a lot of different words that we use, where it's a uh, they, they say one specific plant, but they're using it in the generic term, not actually referring to that plant, and actually meaning that specific plant. I agree totally. Um, the, the way Plutarch uses the word ivy to talk about the maenads, he says that they use the, they eat this ivy and it gives them the enthusiasma. Pretty much the word entheogen is based off the word enthusiasmos, which is eating something to generate this kind of divinity. Now, we don't know of any kind of ivy today that would actually have this effect. Now, this could either be a, a, a form of ivy, a species that is just gone, like maybe it was over-harvested, or like you said, it could just be this generic name you know, instead of a specific name. So th I think that there's at least some evidence for your position with, um, with Plutarch's description of ivy. Right. And, and uh, the use of brass uh, has been used in, in a lot of different uh, religious cults uh, as religion itself evolved. And it seems that uh, that held true for the Jewish temple, the altar uh, was still brass. The, uh, uh, the, the labor, etc. They, they used brass in an otherwise all gold environment, even when they made the Temple of Solomon. You know, so you've got, uh, so that was obviously sacred to them uh, in different ways. And I think it comes out of the, uh, the tradition, going back to the Moses Foundation religion, where he, the, the Nehushtan, which is a play on the word for brass thing, as well as a play on the word for snake, and a play on the word for unclean. Yeah, so the you've got uh, well, it's called in 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 uh, numbers. It's called the nachash and nachoshet. So that's right. the it's just been put into one word, nachushdan, in, yeah, in kings. Exactly. So you've got this this brass thing that they tossed out, 
and and it's significant. Where did they toss it out from? It was kept in the temple. So this uh, the temple. That that's a long time from the time of Moses. That's centuries and centuries and centuries. They've been revering this thing in the temple. Uh, that's assuming it actually came from as far back as Moses. I think Moses is a foundation myth. I don't think he's a historical person. But regardless, their tradition is it came from Moses, and so to them it did. And uh, and nevertheless, they're saying we're tossing it out. And what was it doing in the temple? People were coming there and offering incense to it. What do you know? There, there was a sense of reverence going on, and we know the incense now that was cannabis-based. So once again, I think the original religion of uh, the found, original foundation myth of Moses was a cannabis-based religion, and it got revived during the time of Hezekiah and during the time of this very temple uh, and shrine that has been desecrated that we're discussing. This very t- area, uh, this is the time when Exodus 30 came into existence. It didn't exist before. The idea God gave everybody every green herb. You've got every green herb is the original Moses rule. But the the Exodus rule that just came into existence with these restrictions were, no, only the kings and priests can have it. You know, check verses 30 to 33. It talks about the anointing oil. Only the kings and priests can have it. Yeah. Yeah. So the that's a restriction that came in under Hezekiah. I think that was a whole revision of Hebrew religion at that point. And there was another equal opposite revision of it during the time of Jesus, according to the New Testament. Jesus apparently had the rights of the king because he had access to it. Of course, he was the, the Christos, uh, the Messiah. He's the anointed one. So he was covered in this stuff. He would have smelled like cannabis. And he had the authority to say anybody can use the anointing oil. And so all of a sudden, Mark 6 says they're using the anointing oil to heal the people. And when they're all gone, Jesus is dead and buried. And, and he's gone. The, uh, the James 5 says that the church had the tradition as anybody... Uh, sick, go get the elders and they'll bring the anointing oil and this, everything will be fine. So I think this uh, connecting it to the uh, uh, restrictive priests and kings came in right at the time of this Tel Arad uh, that we're discussing. So You've got a, line, um, a similar thing which goes on with manna as well, um, regardless of what it might be. Um, there's a line, it's also in Exodus, Exodus 16.32, Moses says, this is just as they're approaching the Holy Land, he says, fill an omer of it, of manna, to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness. And then the very next verse says, and Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put in an, uh, put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up. In the ark. In the ark, yeah. And the ark has My been... theory is this is in the Vatican basement, by the way. Right, so the ark, <laughs> in that particular part of the story, the ark hasn't been built yet. In fact, that's the first reference to the ark in the entire book, right? So later scholars are looking back at this and saying, well, this has got to be an interpolation, you know, because uh, it, you know, the thing hasn't been built. Secondly, Moses has given the same instruction twice, and the first instruction, which is, you know, keep it so the generations can see it, is contradicted by the second one, which is stick it in that room where only the high priest is allowed to go. Exactly when the earth interpolation happened is difficult to say, but there's definitely some restriction going on. I want to go back to what Chris was just saying about, um, you know, the fact that this is the divine feminine spirit that was clearly, you know, quashed at some point or other due to sociological power dynamics, most likely. Mm -hmm. And then uh, now is coming back as we're having this kind of a spirit come into the world. And I think that's really 
um, resonant in what I'm seeing in reaction to this, just in the rabbinic community and in the community of like uh, Jewish spiritual seekers. You know, like we have a, a Facebook group called the Ent- Jewish Entheogenic Society. Um, and, and there are people who have been very excited about this for a while. And there is a consciousness that this has a connection to a shift towards a more feminine practice, whether that means a more embodied practice. So, you know, rather than everything just being a heady uh, trip off, you know, onto the, into the, from the mountaintop about something that's actually practiced in your body. So, so much Jewish ritual is about, uh, you know, the food that people eat or the prayers that you sing or the way that you move your body. And cannabis is really, you know, as you work with it, you, you learn it's a way of not always just journeying off into the distance, but actually being in the body, being present and performing ritual, gathering in community. And I think people are seeing more and more how that's able to, uh, to, to intertwine. And the, the shechina, you know, the feminine presence that, that was invoked during the, the burning of the Qatarit and the shechina as this feminine presence that is talked throughout rabbinic history as being in exile. You know, the shechina is bound and broken, is coming back. So, you know, we have teachings, mystic teachings from the later Hasidic rebbe's from as recent as, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, one, one of my teachers, he said, uh, he quoted Song of Songs, which is, um, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. And I always see that as this beautiful vision. He's talking about the Shechina, the, 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 the divine presence being here, not always just being something that you need to journey off to achieve. But I think that seeing more of a presence of cannabis as well as other entheogens intertwined, interwoven into practice is actually allowing people to access that both through connecting to the earth being more, there's a lot more environmental earth-based spiritual practice in the world. I mean, there's a Hebrew priestess movement and they're trying to bring back the ancient Canaanite and Hebrew priestess rituals. And they've, they're doing the research, they're finding that. And even, you know, you, you can talk to some fairly conservative people. Um, you know, I, I'm in a more conservative rabbinic community and people are very interested. They're saying if people are already working with cannabis for medicinal reasons and mental health reasons, it's a natural partnership to start thinking about it from a spiritual perspective, because maybe it can open people up in prayer. Maybe it can allow people to be more conscious of their embodied practices. And I think that that is happening. It's not, it's no coincidence happening at the exact time as a global shift in consciousness or which we're we're totally witnessing right now more than ever. And during a shift towards a more feminine and embodied practice of religion. Yeah, wonderful. Um, well said, folks. Uh, we should probably be wrapping up. Uh, very inspirational words. Uh, so why don't we, everybody? Uh, we'll go around. Maybe give your closing arguments. Although we all agree, nobody's on trial except the, those old days of oppression. Hopefully, better days ahead of us. But uh, very well said, Risha. Do you want to uh, tell the audience more about yourself, where to find you, about your work, or any other uh, uh, parting words? Sure. Um, well, that, that would have been pretty much mainly my parting words. But for more like that, um, I have a website where I have a movement. It's called The Genesis, and it's really about this genesis of embodied spirituality through the lens of the divine feminine. So the website is thegenesis.com, but there's a hyphen between gene and cis. So I can post it in the, in the link, but it's like T-H-E-G-E-N-E hyphen S-I-S. I send, if you sign up for emails, I send out a weekly reflection on the Torah portion using some feminine and other forms of uh, my own spiritual tweaks on things. Uh, and I also do some occasional Facebook videos. We did one on Sinai and psychedelics a couple of weeks ago in honor of the holiday of Sinai. Um, and I'm also, you know, studying in rabbinical school. And when I'm in Brooklyn, I do a lot of embodied rituals and things like that. And now I'm in Jerusalem 
and uh, everything happens on Zoom. So be in touch on Facebook for the Genesis. And awesome, we'll wonderful. Yes, and uh, I will have show notes after this, so uh, I'll be able to spread more of this for those of you who want to see it on the website and so forth. So, and uh, uh, again, we will have the audio version, which I will put on my podcast. Uh, if other views want to request the audio version or the video version for your different channels, let me know. I can send it to you. And uh, why don't we go to Chris? Uh, tell us, uh, tell us yeah. uh, your parting comments, your arguments. If you want a real detailed account of cannabis against cannabossum and its relationship with the goddess, check out my documentary on YouTube, Cannabossum, The Hidden Story of Cannabis. Uh, um, and uh, if you want to keep track of what I'm doing, uh, um, I've got a great blog on CannabisCulture.com that covers all sorts of history. Or you can follow me on Facebook and uh, Libra 420 that's being held up by Reverend Lawson. There's my most latest book. So uh, um, peace and watch for more. The best is yet to come, man. They're going to be they, they're going to be studying more altars. There's going to be more finds and more of what we've been talking about, written about. It's going to come to light. This is the revelation. Make way for the tree of life. Woo! Amen, brother. All right, Danny, tell us about yourself or what, what would you like to say before we go? Um, yeah, I just want to echo what Chris said there. You know, the, the Nag Hammadi books popped out of the earth at a particular interesting point in history, you know, right at the end of the, right at the, end of the Second World War, um, probably a generation before they might have been suppressed and a generation after, maybe everyone would have forgot who Jesus, Jesus Christ was in the first place. So I think when you, get these, when you get these bits of information popping back into culture in such a, in such a way, it, 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 it's good to look very carefully at what it's saying about about the present moment and what we can do with that. Um, about me, uh, yeah, um, a place to find me is on Twitter, Rev Nemu. I'm a reverend as well, but I dropped it for today. Um, I got ordained over the internet. Um, this is my my most recent book, Neuro Apocalypse, which is where I go through quite a lot of the um, the drugs in the Bible stuff. But it's also about um, it's about linguistics and it's about psychology and neurobiology and uh, the, the uh, strange experiences, however they happen, whether that's through neurodivergence or whether that's through shock or whether that's through, um, you know, the things that happen in dreams and all that kind of stuff. Um, I also want to say before I forget, if you've enjoyed the conference, uh, please consider donating to the Holy Land Trust, uh, who we want to help out if we can. And thanks very much for everyone who came. And also apologies to the people on Twitter who've asked questions. We haven't had time to get around to them. But if you, um, if you, we will, we'll answer them on Twitter actually. So we're going to keep a lookout and the hashtag there is holy hotbox questions. So if you've got any questions which are about what you've heard, you can direct them to any of us and we'll answer them on there. Finally, um, I've got an article in the Journal of Psychoactive Studies and uh, it's called getting high with the most high and it goes into the psychopharmacology and the scripture in a whole lot more detail than we've been able to do today. Wonderful. And thank you. Yes. Please support all these uh, great researchers with us today. Tom, what say you? Um, let's see uh, a few things. Uh, first and foremost, I am more than willing to stay and hang out and answer any and all questions anybody has. And I invite the other panelists to do the same if they have the time. I, I, was hoping to get to the questions. It's my favorite part of these things, actually, is the Q&A. Um, 
So uh, I'd also like to say, yes, read Chris Bennett's books. <laughs> they're, they're fantastic, especially uh, Cannabis and the Soma Solution and Libra 420. Um, as far as this discussion, um, we all disagree on the details a little bit, but this new discovery with the cannabis and frankincense vindicates all of us equally. And uh, we all do agree that there are entheogens uh, used in the ancient world. We just have different uh, models of interpreting uh, what those might have been. Um, if you're interested in some pretty hardcore, but at times disappointing uh, research into psychedelic history, you can check out my work where I don't just go looking for where psychedelics are, but also if you could tell by this conversation, I also try to see where psychedelics weren't, but where people think they were anyway. And if you're interested in that level of, of research, I have this book called Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, and um, I have another book called The Witch's Ointment, which is the most in-depth study of uh, witch's ointments and flying ointments and medieval wise women and how they were having entheogenic experiences to date. Uh, you can find me at Psychedelic Historian on uh, Instagram, uh, or I think it's Instagram at Psychedelic Historian. I think that's what it is. Sorry. Um, also, Facebook.com slash Psychedelic Historian. And if you're interested in what is about to become the world's largest online repository for psychedelic literature, in one month, check out Sanctum.com. That's P-S-A-N-C-T-U-M. Oh, shit, not .com, .org. Sorry, I just smoked a bowl. Sanctum.org. And uh, we have thousands of uh, literary papers on psychedelia, everything from the late 1800s to the modern day and beyond. It's, it's going to be huge. So uh, hope to catch you uh, uh, sometime later. Wow, that's great news. And look forward to that one. And yes, we had uh, so many panelists with so many insights, we couldn't get to the questions. But like Danny says, uh, let's go to Twitter and get a conversation there. Well, to the Oh, <laughs> I want to answer the question. Next time, next time, we'll, we'll do a part two. Well, Reverend Lawson, give us a manna from heaven before we go. Okay, well, uh, first of all, I'm going to pitch Reconstructing Jesus. It's my uh, uh, interpretation of who I think the historical Jesus was. Uh, clue, not the one that you read about <laughs> in the New Testament, who he really might have been, based upon my study of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And... Uh, by the way, uh, I, the, when I was in court discussing all this, I brought some of that information into the court evidence, and the court wanted to have me refuted, and they invited Dead Sea School scholars to come and refute me. Wow. Uh, they invited Jewish scholars. No, it won't come. They invited Protestant scholars. won't come. They invited uh, Catholic scholars. No, it won't come. None of them were willing to come and testify under oath, uh, where someone who can point out where in the scrolls the information can be found uh, you don't want to get caught lying under oath. Uh, you go to jail for that. So no one was willing to risk the reputation to take the chances, despite being offered large rewards to come and testify. The uh, so, and the crown could have spent a fortune. They were they they the crown was able to offer up to oh, a year's wages to come and testify, plus all expenses, and they wouldn't come. So what does that tell you? Uh, and then, this is my most recent periodical publication. This is a journal of. Uh, higher criticism. I have an article uh, in there on Jewish and Pauline mythologization of the Jesus story. Uh, that's also based on my study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I do mention the use of entheogens uh, in that article as well. So uh, that's volume 
13, number four, if you're ordering it. The uh, Journal of Higher Criticism, volume 13, number four. We'll have my article. And uh, right. thank, I want to thank you for including me with all these other spectacular guests and informed people. And uh, before I go, I want to say to Rishi, uh, I really find that the Genesis stories, comparing them and looking at Genesis 1, uh, where the Eloist myth shows the women and men being created equally, uh, and that these women had a sense of being closer to God because they were given equal rights. This was apparently the urban version of the myth, and these people were the rich people. The women had equal rights because they had servants. Their, their myth has God gives commands and everything happens, just like the rich people do. They give commands and the servants get it done. Yeah. So they were giving commands to men as well as women. And so the women had a higher status. And it seems to me, even though this was a myth, it's a spiritual truth that if women are given equal rights, they, they, that will enhance spirituality. And I think we'll have to do the Kabbalistic version of those myths another time for the next Yeah, time. or even right. yeah, in the Gnostic creation myths, Eve is always superior to Adam. So that's just, she yeah. is the, she's the life. She is Sophia. But uh, yeah, great, great conversation. Really appreciate it. Uh, a, truly a joy. So thank you very much for coming, all of you panelists, and for the audience in the chat room. Thank you very much for uh, keeping us company. And yes, as some are asking, I will put links and links in the description. I'll put links in my website. And if you have any issues, you need to find somebody just emailing me from my site. But having said well, that, thanks. Thanks for me, actually, Miguel. I'm Seeing sorry? as we're offering thanks at the moment, um, we haven't really talked about it today, but I know um, that some of the researchers here have got their, um, their way into research was directly through the plants. You know, the plants pointed us in certain directions of certain texts to look at. And I think we should bear in mind that we are uh, the recipients of some fantastic information. And we've got some plants to thank you for, to thank for that. Yes, thank you for the plant teachers. Exactly. Thank you. The plants are always talking to us. And Danny, you know, from Santo Daime, the plants is always giving information to us. So, uh, but anyway. <laughs> oh, wait. And last thing, ahead, please remember psychedelic history is just as sacred as the plants themselves. So let's get it right. There you go. Good Rick idea. Yasna 922. Blend the fragrances of the fragrance. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thank you very much. And everybody, please have a very nice and high Sunday. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for putting this together. Lovely to meet you all. All right. Good night.
Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. 
How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.